It's uh, great to see you today. I hope that you're doing well. I'm excited to bring God's Word to you today. It's just uh, one of my great joys in my life to be able to do this, for which I am truly grateful. So take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 4 or your Bible app and click on Matthew 4. That's where we find ourselves today. And there's also a study outline, as you know, in your worship folder that you can pull out. And that way you can follow along with us. And uh, we've got some really great stuff to uh, talk about today. So just to kind of get our hearts uh, in the right orientation towards the Lord, let me pray for us. Lord, give us ears to hear now from your word. Thank you for this incredibly intriguing story of the temptation of Jesus. And Lord, I just know that you have truth in here for us today. And so may the seed of your word find soft soil and take root and bear fruit in our lives, and I ask this in your precious name. Amen. 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 So to kind of get us thinking along the lines of uh, where we'll be today, here's a question for you. Can you think of a time in your life when you were being tested in a big way, when it seemed like uh, circumstances were being orchestrated that were designed to really stretch you, and, and you knew you know, what you were made of was going to get revealed during that season? Maybe you're in a a season like that right now. Well, today we're going to explore just such a season in the life of Jesus Christ and hopefully learn about it for ourselves today. As you know, we're in a study of the book of Matthew, which is really a biography, an unfolding biography of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's Matthew's intent to portray Jesus as king, right? Ruler, one who comes to reign. And in chapter 1, we were shown his royal ancestry and his miraculous conception and birth. And then in chapter 2, we saw the boy king being honored by the wise men from the east and then protected by God from evil men. And then last week in chapter 3, we saw the king publicly announced by his cousin, his outrageous cousin John, who brought him to the forefront. And then the chapter culminated in John baptizing Jesus, you recall, in the Jordan River in a kind of inauguration ceremony at the outset of Jesus' public ministry. And now today in chapter 4, we encounter another phase of Jesus' preparation to be king. It's often referred to as the temptation of Christ. And so let me read it for us from Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, I guess so. You would be too, right? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, that's quite a story, isn't it? And there's a lot in there. 
Let me make some quick observations right off the bat. Notice it says that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And that number 40 is a significant number in the Bible. And here I think it harkens back to Israel's 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. Remember that? Grumbling and complaining against God. I think Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the true and better Israel coming to succeed where Israel failed. The Bible also tells us that Jesus was the second Adam, and I'm wondering if you can see the analogy here. The first Adam failed his test in the garden. Now the second Adam, our second human representative, passes his test, not in a beautiful garden, but in a rugged wilderness. So where Adam disobeyed God and failed us, Jesus obeyed God and came through for us. So not only is Jesus the true and better Israel, he's the true and better Adam. Then notice it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That tells us this was part of God's plan for Jesus. Certainly Satan had his own intentions, but the devil was simply playing a role in God's training program for his son. As one scholar has noted, the devil is really just the unwitting servant of God and doesn't realize it. I think it's also significant that Jesus was tempted just as he was coming off a spiritual high. His baptism, right? Mark it down. You have a great experience in your own journey with God, and there's the devil waiting right around the corner to knock you off your high horse. That's just the way he is. In Luke's account of this story, he makes it clear that this tempting went on for the entire 40 days, and that it culminated in these three enticements at the end. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. As our high priest, Jesus Christ endured every kind of temptation that you have ever endured or will ever endure. He has been there. That's why we can go to him on those occasions with confidence, knowing he will sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows that temptation is hard. Now, the three Specific temptations dangled in front of Jesus at the end of those 40 days are significant. I believe the devil designed them to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Are you familiar with those terms? They come from 1 John chapter 2. Those are the exact same appeals that Satan made to Eve centuries earlier in the Garden of Eden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And it's the same bait that he uses on you and I today, right? Feed your flesh, feast your eyes on stuff that you really want, and make a name for yourself. Sensuality, materialism, and selfish ambition, they've been around for a long time. And as a temptation tactic, they are proven in their effectiveness against human beings. That's why he keeps using them again and again and again. But there's another angle here, I think, that's unique to Jesus. I think these three tests presented him with the challenge of what to do with supernatural power. If you had the ability, if you were given the ability to create things out of nothing, how would you use that ability? If you had the power and authority to cause nature to conform to your desires, how would you use that power? That's a key question that a king in training has to answer. 
For what purpose will I use my power and my authority? Will I use it to benefit myself or will I use it for the benefit of other people? All right, well, this is a showdown in the desert, right? Let's explore this in a little more detail. Some scholars, and I agree with them, has, have viewed this as Satan's scouting session. The devil scouting out the strengths and weaknesses of his new opponent so he could find out what he was really up against. That make, would make sense. Gerard Hopkins wrote this, The temptation was something of a get-acquainted session between Jesus and Satan. Satan may not have known for certain what kind of a being this Jesus was, so he challenged Jesus to perform miracles as a means of scouting out his adversary's powers. In essence, Satan was challenging Jesus in the desert, show me what you got, show me your stuff, kind of a drawing him out effort. We know the devil had plans to eventually take Jesus down, so it would have been in his best interest to find out to scout out his adversary, to detect what are his assets and what are his resources. And I believe that's one thing Satan was doing. Now, for many years, you know, hearing this story growing up, this whole temptation story kind of baffled me. I couldn't understand why Satan chose these particular ones. I mean, they just didn't seem that evil to me. If you're a world-class tempter and you're trying to get a young man, a 30-year-old man, to sin... Wouldn't you parade a bunch of naked women in front of him? Wouldn't you maybe offer him a million dollars to tell a lie? What's with turning stones into bread and jumping off a building? What would be so wrong giving in to those temptations? It was confusing to me. I wasn't sure what that was all about. So let's take a look at each temptation and try to understand what was really underneath them and what was behind them, okay? The temptations of Jesus. Temptation number one, after observing a 40-day fast, like Moses of old, like Elijah of old, Jesus out in the wilderness was hungry, he was alone, he was weary, he was famished, and Satan comes to him in that moment, and here's the temptation, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I think at first glance, that temptation seems pretty innocent, right? Use your powers to feed your appetite. You're hungry. But I see a three-fold strategy in this first temptation. First of all, it was a challenge to his identity. Oh, yes, it was. If you are the Son of God. You remember just a few days before, Jesus had heard those words those wonderfully liberating words from his father at his baptism. You are my beloved son. Now here comes Satan. If you're the son, if you're the son of God, challenging his identity, questioning, casting doubt. That was his strategy against Jesus, and it still is his strategy against Jesus' people today. Whispering to us, I know you've been reading the Bible I know you've been hearing in church that you're a new creation in Christ, a beloved son or daughter of God, all that. But really? I mean, would one of God's kids act like you've been acting? I think God might have made a mistake choosing you. <laughs> you can mark it down. Satan will attack your newfound identity in Jesus Christ. He did it to Jesus. He will do it to you. 
So that's what this was. But not only that, this particular temptation was also a taunt. He was taunting Jesus in order to try and provoke him. Now, how many of you have teenagers living in the house? Can I see your hands? Okay, how's that going? <laughs> Surviving that? Now, does this ever happen in your home? Your teenager pushes your buttons, says things to push your buttons to get a reaction out of you. Does that ever happen in your home? No, never happens, right? <laughs> well, I, I think that's kind of what was going on here. Satan, no doubt, had been present when Jesus was baptized. He'd heard the pronouncement from heaven, this is my beloved son. I can just see him stand there so. God's son, huh? You look pretty normal to me. You're God's son? Prove it. Do something spectacular. I think he was taunting him to try to get a reaction from him. Now we know that Jesus, as I mentioned last week, hadn't really done anything, you know, miraculous or, or that noteworthy up to this point. And Satan wasn't sure what he was up against. He needed to gather some intelligence on his enemy. So I think he was thinking, maybe if I push his buttons, <laughs> it, it'll draw him out. Maybe I can get a reaction out of Jesus and he'll show me what he's got. Really, it was an appeal to pride. You know, if you push human beings far enough, eventually they'll draw their weapon and show you what they've got. Problem was with Jesus, Jesus didn't have pride. He was the Son of God. And Jesus showed himself to be so secure in who he was, in his identity, the beloved Son of the Father, that he realized, I got nothing to prove. I got nothing to prove to anybody, especially to you, Satan. I got nothing to prove to you. And he restrained himself. You know, Jesus could have reacted, turned these stones into bread. He could have turned every single stone in the wilderness into a loaf of delicious, mouth-watering wonder bread with chocolate chips inside. I mean, he could have done that, right? He could have done that, but he restrained himself. He had nothing to prove. As a result, Satan remained in the dark. And of course, this was also obviously an appeal to his appetite. It's another time-tested tactic of Satan. Satan tries to get people fixated and obsessing over satisfying their desires, as if that were the most important thing in all of life. Even God-given appetites for food and for sleep and for sexual intimacy can be exploited and twisted by the enemy so that they become the focus of our lives. He's good at that, isn't he? Well, Jesus would have none of it. He passed the first test with flying colors. He refused to take the bait. He countered with Scripture, didn't he? It is written. And what did he say? Man does not live on bread alone, Satan, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan, my nourishment comes from God's word. I'm feasting on bread that you know nothing about, and it's good, and it's all I really need. So nothing doing, Satan. What else you got? So Satan tries a new tactic, probably unfazed by that. Somehow, he mysteriously transports Jesus to Jerusalem and perches him high up on the pinnacle of the temple, some 400 feet off the ground. There were likely crowds milling around down below. 
And then Satan speaks to Jesus. Temptation number two. If you are the son of God, jump. (laughs) Throw yourself down from here. Now what is that all about? Well, think about it. He's trying to lure Jesus into performing a spectacular acrobatic act right at the outset of his public ministry in order to gather a following, in order to, to gain a crowd. Kind of a divine bungee jump. <laughs> that would gain him some fans, right? Again, I, I think this is a multifaceted temptation, aligned with many hooks. Undoubtedly, concealed in this challenge is an appeal to Jesus to go the celebrity route, to be a rock star. To try and attract a crowd and start a movement with a spectacular display of shock and awe right up front. And you know, if you're a gifted person, like Jesus was, that's a very tempting route to go, isn't it? Huge crowds, ooing and aahing, endorsement contracts. (laughs) And maybe you're thinking, well, what would be so wrong with that? Jesus wanted to attract a following, right? Yes. But as we would see, we will see later in his life, not a crowd of fickle fans. That's not what he was after. Jesus was much more interested in recruiting a core of faithful followers, and he knew that what you win them with is what you win them to. He knew that if he, if he started off with pyrotechnics and gathered a crowd that way, that the crowd would want more and more and more and more. And later on, when he fed 5,000 people, remember this, miraculously, what happened the very next day? They followed him around the lake. Jesus, bring us that buffet again. That was good stuff yesterday. Jesus knew what you win people with is what you win people to. He knew that. He wanted followers who would die for him, not just fans who would cheer for him. Big difference. And so he knew how he went about gathering people mattered. You see, being a superstar celebrity is not the way of Jesus. Not then, not now. And I think we in the 21st century have to be so careful here because our culture is so seductive along these lines. You know, think about our church. If our, if our church ever gets to the point where our heartbeat is to impress people with our facilities or with our superstar staff or, you know, with our cool technology, the, the moment that our heartbeat becomes impressing people with how cool we are, that's the moment we've stopped following the king. That's not Jesus' way. Never has been his way. And so Satan's there tempting him. Jump, Jesus! You'll be an instant hit. Your angels will swoop in and rescue you just in the nick of time. That's what the Bible promises you, right? Did you notice that Satan was quoting the Bible? He was quoting from Psalms. Satan, the devil, knows the word of God, but he just does with it what a lot of Christians and a lot of TV preachers do, rips it out of its context and uses it for his own twisted, warped purposes. That's what he did. And so, this was a temptation to start as a rock star, to be a celebrity, to go the celebrity route. Well, not only that, it was a temptation and enticement to live recklessly and expect God to bail you out. This is one of the devil's favorites too. Do you see this? Go ahead, jump, have faith, God will rescue you. 
For Jesus, it was jumping off a building. For you, it might be jumping into a load of consumer debt. It might be jumping into an ill-advised relationship. It might be jumping into bed with someone who's not your spouse. It might be jumping ship when God's called you to steer the ship. The same temptation, for the sake of a thrill, make a reckless choice, clearly outside the boundaries of God's word, and then expect God to save you from the consequences, and if he doesn't, get mad at him for the rest of your life. That sounds like Satan, doesn't it? If you're ever tempted to do that, just know where that kind of temptation comes from. Jesus knew. He didn't fall for it. He said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test God like that. Don't live recklessly and expect God to bail you out. Jesus refused to jump. Maybe Satan was flustered now. He decides to just go for it. So he crafts a third temptation that had to be appealing. After somehow showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and all of their splendor, Satan turns to Jesus and says, All these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Well, that's pretty brazen, isn't it? I think it was probably a legitimate offer. Satan is called the God of this world. The offer of kingdom rule to Jesus of Nazareth. And, and that had to be at least a little bit attractive to Jesus. What's Satan doing here? Well, certainly he's offering an easier way, right? A shortcut. A pathway to kingship that totally bypasses pain and suffering. Jesus, look. You're in line to rule the world, right? Why go through all that crucifixion stuff, the flogging and the nails in your hands and feet? Why go through all of that? I'm offering you right here, right now, the chance to wear a kingly crown without having to wear a cross of shame. Come on, you could be king of the world right now. And I wonder how many of us have ever been duped by that kind of offer. How many of us live our lives taking shortcuts trying to avoid all pain, how many of us always take the easier way? That route looks so appealing to us. But you know, in Scripture, God's pattern is pretty clear. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. That was certainly his pattern with his son. And Jesus knew it. And so he said, no, I'm not going to take the easier path. I'm not going to take the shortcut. He knew that what he would forfeit for the sake of comfort wouldn't be worth it. It was a trade-off not worth making in Jesus' mind. I think in addition, Satan was urging Jesus to run ahead of God's timing. We know what that's like, right? What if Jesus had thought to himself in that moment, you know, I want all that the Father has promised me and I want it now. Does that sound familiar, by the way? That sound like that younger brother in the parable of the lost sons? I want what's coming to me and I want it now. You know, if Jesus had gone that route, you know what Jesus would have ended up with? A kingdom with no subjects. You see, if Jesus had bypassed the cross, then no provision would have been made for anybody to be reconciled to God. There would have been no atonement for sin, no empty tomb, no salvation, no good news, no heart transformation, no family of God. 
A lot was at stake in that moment when Jesus was being tempted to run ahead of God's timing, and I am so glad that he chose not to. He would have received a kingdom that had no subjects in it. Thankfully, Jesus resisted the allure of instant gratification. And he also resisted the call here in this third temptation to worship something other than God. You can have all this right now, Satan said. If you'll just do this one little thing, just bow down and worship me. Just honor me as God. I read that and I thought, oh, so that's what this is all about. It's about worship. It's about who is worthy to be worshipped. And you do know, don't you, that Satan craves to be worshipped? That's what got him expelled from heaven in the first place, right? He wanted to usurp God's place of being the one worthy of worship. Can you imagine the change in the grand story if the Son of God had fallen down at the feet of Satan and honored him and worshipped him as God? That would have changed the whole ballgame, right? Perhaps the biggest question of our lives is this, who will we deem worthy of our worship? The question is not, will you worship? You are a worshiper. All of us are incurable worshipers. We will give our lives in the pursuit of something, won't we? We'll give our energies and our affections and our devotions to chase after something. All of us are worshipers. The question is, who will we deem worthy of our worship? Who will we choose? Well, Jesus knew the answer to that question. He rejected Satan's offer, quoted scripture again. Only God is worthy to be bowed down to and worshiped, Jesus said. Bowing down to anyone or anything else is tantamount to idolatry. It's just rank idolatry. Jesus knew that. I can't bow down and worship you, Satan. You're not worthy of my worship. You can offer me whatever you want to offer me. I'm not bowing down. Well, three strikes and you're out, right? After passing the ultimate test, Jesus was done. I love what it says here. Be gone, Satan. Away with you. We're done here. And it says the devil left him. Luke's account tells us he left him until a more opportune time. You know, the devil would cycle back and try to derail Jesus again through Peter. Remember? Get behind me, Satan. He would come again in the garden. You know, some people teach that all you have to do as a Christian is speak scripture and Satan has to flee. I don't believe that. I believe Satan has to be convinced. He has to be convinced that you are a lost cause to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're saying, you know, look, you can come at me with everything you got, but I stand with Jesus Christ, and I stand against you. I will never serve you. I will never worship you. I know where you take your followers. My Savior died for me. He shed his blood for me. He redeemed me. I stand with Jesus Christ. Throw everything you got at me. I'm not caving in. I think the devil has to be convinced that you're a lost cause. And so I ask myself and all of you, have you ever convinced Satan that you're not worth messing with anymore, that he's wasting his time on you to the point where he goes, you know, this is not good stewardship here. I need to go mess with somebody else. 
I'm not getting anywhere with this gal. I'm not getting anywhere with this guy. Everything I throw at him, they come back at me. He has to be convinced. Well, for now, this round of temptations was over. Satan had failed. Jesus passed his test. And it says, angels came and ministered to his soul. (laughs) Wish I'd been a fly on the wall out there in the wilderness to see what that looked like. Angels ministering to Jesus. And that's the story. So what's here for us? We know that Jesus is our Savior and our King, right? And our Lord. But he's also our example. I think we can learn some very valuable and important things from our King when it comes to resisting the temptations that we face. What was it that enabled Jesus to pass the test? I want to bring out four things here. First, Jesus was able to resist the temptations of the devil because he was totally secure in his identity. Totally secure in who he was. I'm contending today that you and I can say no to even the most alluring temptations if we know who we are in Christ. Since desires arise from our identity and since behavior flows out of our identity, this is perhaps the most important element of any plan that you might put into place to resist temptation, to beat a life-dominating sin, or to break free from an addiction is to form a secure identity in Jesus Christ. You've got to know who you are in Christ and stand in that. If he says you're a beloved son of God, then you're a beloved son of God. If he says you're a beloved daughter of the Most High God, then that's who you are. Listen, as best I understand the gospel and this new covenant that we live in, I believe that as a follower of Jesus, I am now a saint. I'm a saint who sometimes sins, but I am a saint. I'm no longer defined by the things that I've done in my past, nor even by the things I'm doing right now in my present. I'm defined by what God says about me and how he views me. I am a saint. My primary identity identity is a beloved child of the Father, forgiven, righteous, justified, free because of God's grace to me in Christ. Do I still sin? Yeah, I fall short every day, but that's not my primary identity. That's an important distinction, isn't it? A saint is what I am. Sin is what I sometimes do. I'm a saint who sometimes sins, not a sinner who sometimes stumbles into righteousness. You've got to get that for many reasons. Jesus was totally secure in his identity. It gave him strength and resolve to say no to temptation. But beyond that and flowing out of that, Jesus was deeply committed to his mission. He was secure in his identity and he knew what he was here to do. He knew who he was. As a result, his mission was clear. Remember last week we said that uh, identity clarifies our mission. Mission flows from identity. Jesus knew he was here to live an obedient life to the Father, to die on an old rugged cross and shed his blood for the sins of the world, to rise from the grave for our justification. He knew that was his mission. And so I believe these temptations lost some of their allure because to Jesus, giving in to any of them would would feel like getting sidetracked from his mission. Does that make sense? 
look, Satan, that's not why I'm here. I'm on a mission from God. I'm not going to be deterred or distracted or derailed from that mission. I know who I am. I know what I'm here to do. Isaiah says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, towards Calvary, towards the cross, and these things felt like distractions. No, that's not why I'm here. A strong sense of mission cannot help but strengthen our resolve. Gives us yet another reason to say no to temptation. But if it's hazy, if we're hazy on our mission, if we're hazy on why we're here, then it's really easy to say, well, why not? You know, it looks like fun. Everybody else is doing it. Instead of, no, that's where I'm going right there. Jesus knew why he was here. Do you know why you're here? Jesus' example shows us another source of strength, and that is that Jesus was strongly fortified in God's word. Did you pick up on how Jesus responded to each of these temptations? What did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it's written. Written where? In the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, which Jesus had been trained in since a child, he committed them to memory, hadn't he? He knew the word. I mean, he was prepared in that moment for Satan. It's not like he was there and Satan's throwing all this stuff at him and Jesus is like, oh man, where are my scrolls? Doggone it. I forgot them. Oh, he's like, I, I know the word. I know the word. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And the word has that kind of power. Jesus was able to resist temptation because he was strongly fortified in God's word. Because he knew the word, he knew the truth. Because he knew the truth, he was able to uncover and expose the lies that are hidden within every temptation. We know this, right? Just like fishing bait conceals a hook, every temptation conceals a lie. And so Satan comes to us and says, you know, just this once won't matter. Dabble in this, play with this, watch this, go here, hang out there. Nothing's going to happen. No one's going to know. It'll feel good. And besides that, you've earned it. You deserve this little secret pleasure. Does he whisper those kinds of things to you? He does to me. You know what about all those things? They're all lies. And if you don't know the truth of God's word, if your mind and heart isn't saturated and soaked in the word of God, you won't have the ammo to expose those lies for what they are. Here's one more reason to read, listen, study, memorize, and meditate on the word of God to fortify ourselves against temptation. You know, during this uh, 40 days adventure, love works that we're on, one of the commitments Brian mentioned earlier is just to be in the word every day just to be in the Word of God every day. And I, I love this little um, booklet that Pastor Jay and actually 40 of our small group leaders each wrote a, a short devotional. It's called the 10-Minute Workout, <laughs> a, 40 day, a daily devotional for the 40-day love work spiritual adventure. For a couple bucks, you can pick one up out at the, the counter. Wouldn't it be awesome if all of us were in the Word every day? I wonder what kinds of, kind of strength we would find from God's Word to keep on our path and to view temptation as just a distraction. Well, there's one big lie in particular Satan's been using on people for centuries, and here it is. God is not really good. 
He'll tell you that. God's not really good. Living under the reign of King Jesus is not pleasant. It's not good. God just wants to restrict your happiness with all of his rules. So say heck with that. Take a bite. It's okay. You'll be satisfied. That lie is concealed in nearly every temptation, and that leads me to the final reason Jesus was able to resist temptation, and maybe the most important one, and that is that Jesus was completely satisfied in God. Completely satisfied in God himself. You know, in Luke's account, it says that going into the wilderness, Jesus was full of the Spirit. Everything I know about Jesus Christ, everything I've studied about him, tells me that Jesus was full of God. I mean, he was God. But his relationship with his Father was so special to him, so important, so satisfying to him. The deepest needs of his heart were met because his Father was his supreme treasure. And as a result, temptation wasn't that captivating and sin's allure wasn't that strong. Everybody look at me for a minute. Those of you who are asleep, the guys asleep next to you, <laughs> nudge him. Look at me. I truly believe that you can get to a point, that I can get to a point in my life and you and yours where you're so taken by the glory of God, you're so enamored with Jesus Christ, his love for you is so strong in your heart that things that used to have a pull on you start to look disgusting. Like, really? I used to be into that? <laughs> wow. Just now, you know, biting on that sounds to me like biting on a three-day-old piece of cold pizza. Just, ugh, you know? <laughs> what was I thinking? I mean, I, I think that God can become your portion in life. God can become the living water that fills your soul. Jesus Christ can fill you up on the inside so that those things that used to have their hooks in you, you're like, Ugh, just disgusting. That's the way to beat sin, by the way. You don't beat sin by getting up in the morning going, okay, all right, God, today I am going to say no to sin. Help me, Jesus. That's just grinding out law obedience, and it doesn't work. You can't sustain it over the long haul. You might have a few short bursts. It's just sin management. And sin management doesn't work. You want to obey Christ? Fall in love with Jesus. Cultivate such a relationship with Him that He becomes your treasure, your portion, your satisfaction. And those old habits and things that you were into, that those addictions and so forth, ugh, you know, I'm just losing interest because I'm captivated. My heart's captivated by Jesus Christ. Don't you want that? That's what I want. That's what I want. I think it was John Piper who wrote, at the root of all sin is dissatisfaction with God. We think he's not good. We think that what he's provided for us isn't enough. And so we go around scratching and clawing, trying to fill up those empty spaces in our hearts. And you know what it is? It's pitiful. Because the King, the glorious Savior, the El Shaddai, one of my favorite names for God, the God who is sufficient, who is enough, is saying, I provided in myself everything you need. What are you doing picking around in the garbage pile over there? Well, I wonder where we're at on this one. 
Are we treasuring God above all else to the point that we are deeply satisfied in him? Are we tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? No one can taste for you. Have you noticed that? If they tell you about a restaurant they're really into, you know, you got to go yourself, right? (laughs) And taste for yourself. And that's what our God offers us is himself. I will be your portion, he says. Well, I hope and pray those truths that arise from this story are empowering to all of us today as we enter into our season of testing, or maybe you're already in it. In a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. You saw the tables as you came in, and they're, they're along the perimeter of the walls here. And um, it's a special time, isn't it? To remember the sacrifice of Christ for his people. But you know, I want to ask you to do something as you prepare your hearts. On the back of your study guide is a little box, again, down at the bottom. And it has this little statement. When I'm not feeling satisfied in God, I tend to dot, dot, dot. And I want to ask you to to take a few moments and reflect on what you've heard this morning and reflect on your life and how you live your life and ask yourself, where do I go? What am I drawn towards when I'm not feeling satisfied in God? What do I daydream about? Where do my fantasies take me? What am I drawn towards that I think is just really going to satisfy me and fill me up when I'm not feeling satisfied in God. I want you to reflect on that for a moment, then I'm going to ask you to complete that sentence. And no, you're not going to have to exchange papers with the person on your right. I'm sure this is between you and God. You're not going to turn it in. This is just gut-level honesty. Lord, when I'm not satisfied in you, here's where I go. Here's what I'm drawn towards. Here's what I start chasing after. And I think it's possible that all of us today, before we partake of the Lord's table, might need to humble ourselves before the Lord and confess that we have not been fully satisfied in Him. That's what sin is, by the way. Not being satisfied in the all-satisfying God, El Shaddai. Let's pray together. Precious Lord Jesus Christ, as your people now prepare to approach your table with the elements that represent your body crushed for us and your blood spilled for our sins, may we not come with arrogance in our hearts or pride in our hearts. May we not come holding on to sins in our lives. May we humbly confess and repent. And then may we rejoice in the sacrifice that covers, has covered and covers and will cover all of our sins. May we encourage one another in that today. These next few moments are yours to respond to the Lord and our prayer partners are going to be available on each side and I think it's possible that some of you might need to come and, and make a confession to one of them. Here's, here's where I go. Here's what I chase after when I'm not satisfied in God and they'll keep that confidential. They'll pray over you. 
you can come for anything, really, any, anything the Lord might be talking to you about, or if you want to be prayed for, for healing in your life, uh, any of these folks would love to pray with you. And then when you're ready, you can make your way to the table. Take the little piece of bread that represents his body, dip it into the cup of juice that represents his blood, and thank Jesus Christ for his sacrifice for you and for me. Oh, what great love Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And then we'll worship together.